this week on Hope for the Broken. You know, Jesus spent more time talking about money than grace and forgiveness combined. More than heaven or hell combined, Jesus talked about money. Why? Why would Jesus spend the bulk of his discipleship time here on earth talking about this issue? Well, because Jesus, above all, is concerned about your heart. And nothing more reveals our heart than how we spend our money. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Biblical Family in a Modern World. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part six titled, Money Matters. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. I'm so very grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. We are in the middle of a teaching series that we've entitled A Biblical Family in a Modern World. We're seeking to align our lives in this modern day according to proven biblical principles. And so we're looking at God's design for marriage and family. The Bible is full of encouragement to us as believers, as followers of Jesus, and how we align our lives and in in when it comes to our marriage and when it comes to our family. And, and so the purpose of this is that we examine that and we begin to apply those principles into our lives and into our homes and see God work in powerful ways. So far, we've talked about God's design of the marriage relationship. We talked about what it means to build a godly home and not just build houses. We talked about the differing roles of husband and wife in the marriage relationship. And last week, we talked about raising godly kids. Today's message is entitled, Money Matters. You know, marriage gurus say that the three biggest conflicts in marriage deal with the topics of parenting, money, and intimacy. So here we are in this part of our teaching series, where last week we took a look at parenting. Today, we're taking a look at money. And next week, we're going to talk about intimacy. And so we're going to tackle these three biggest areas and bring them under the lordship of Christ. Now, if you've been a part of our study so far, I've told you, uh, and I want to keep echoing this because I think it's important that, that I am not perfect in these areas. In fact, I'm far from it. And my hope and my prayer is that we would not be beat down by this, but instead that we would see God's design, God's desire for our lives, and so pursue him that we begin to see God's blessings in our lives. And I know for those of you that are guests, you're, you're here and you're like, here, I, here it is, I come and they're going to talk about money and church, right? And we're confirming every single stereotype you know about church. But let me tell you this. If it's the biggest issue in marriage, God's got something to say about it, and let's begin to see and order our lives and see God's blessings in our life in in this area. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 17 through 19. Now, as you turn there, I want to share with you some statistics that I came across uh, this week in studying for this message. According to a recent study, marriage is the number one issue married couples fight about. 
This study also revealed that conflict, that this conflict of money is the second leading cause of divorce. The first leading cause is infidelity. That 86% of marriages within the last five years began their marriage with consumer debt. Compare that to 25 years ago when only 43% of couples began their marriage in debt. The study also concluded that the larger a couple's debt, the more likely they are to fight about money. And according to another study, the average American spends six hours a week shopping. That does not include shopping for groceries. That is simply consumer product shopping. What these statistics tell me is that if you and your spouse argue over money, welcome to the club, right? This is a sensitive issue in marriages, and it is a very common issue. And so what I want to talk today is I want to talk about matters pertaining to money and offer some very practical ways that you and your family can begin to order your family according to God's word in this area. And the outcome, I believe, will be a reduced stress in our families, and in our homes. Again, I'm a work in progress on this. But let's first read our text together, and then I want to talk about key principles in determining finances and the way finances matter in the home. So let's read, you read along in your copy of God's Word, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul writes to Timothy, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Four principles on why money matters in the home. First, money matters because money is a matter of the heart. Money matters because money is a matter of the heart. It's a heart issue. The root issue behind money issues is the heart. See, money in and of itself is neutral. It's morally neutral. It's our hearts that apply it in a very sinful way or approach it in a sinful way. Again, in verse 17, Paul highlights this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. A couple of things with regard to money being a matter of the heart. First, let's look at who Paul is addressing here. Paul is telling Timothy, as for the rich. Now you may read that and say, that is far from who I am. I am far from rich, so he's not talking about me. But when you think about it, by virtue of living in the United States of America, you and I are among the wealthiest people in the world. I read a study this week that said that the median worldwide income is $2,800 a year. The median worldwide income, $2,800 a year. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the poverty line for a family of four in Texas is $29,950 a year. Even if you are at the poverty line in the state of Texas, hear me, you are 10 times wealthier than the average person in the world. So when Paul says, as for the rich, 
You know who he's talking about? He's talking about you and me. He's talking about us. We are rich. Now, Paul's urging to us then is to charge us not to be haughty, nor to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, do not in any way, shape, or form place your heart, set your heart on money. Our hearts should not be in our money. It will either, Paul says, lead to haughtiness, which is arrogance, or anxiety. Why would it lead to haughtiness? Well, if we are arrogant about the riches and the wealth that we have accrued, then we are haughty. And it all is about us. And look at what we provide. But if we're anxious, if we set our hopes in money, then we become anxious because uh, money is uncertain. The economy is uncertain. What the future holds is uncertain. And you will live a life of worry and anxiety. The simple truth is, as Paul is saying, you can't put your hearts in your money. You can't. That cannot be where a Christian places their heart. You know, Jesus spent more time talking about money than grace and forgiveness combined. More than heaven or hell combined. Jesus talked about money. Why? Why would Jesus spend the bulk of his discipleship time here on earth talking about this issue? Well, because Jesus, above all, is concerned about your heart. Jesus is most concerned with my heart. And if money is a, is a root of our hearts, then he addresses our heart issues. And nothing more reveals our heart than how we spend our money. Earlier in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 10, Paul tells Timothy this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through its craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now hear me, Paul is not saying that money is evil, did he? What did he say? He says the love of money. And he says the craving for money is what is evil. In other words, money is not the problem, it's your heart. It's our heart. In Jesus' teaching on money in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, our hearts always follow our treasure. What is most important in your life is where you will find your heart. Money and our hearts play upon one another. And so therefore, money really is a heart issue. And a major way that this affects marriage and the family is that we bring our sinful bents, our sinful hearts to bear on money in our families. You know, rarely do both the husband and the wife have the same view or approach to money. In fact, I found that opposites usually attract here. Uh, and, And therefore, cue the dynamite. The environment is ripe for a fight when it comes to money matters in the home. But here's the deal. When we surrender our hearts to what Scripture has to teach on this subject, I believe we reduce the tension in the home. We experience harmony in the home. And we are more so on the same page. So how does our heart, how is our heart fashioned towards money? 
I want to give you five ways that our hearts are shaped towards money. Because some of us are savers, some of us are spenders, some are planners, others are impulsive. You know, by the way, the checkout line is designed for me. Like I stand in the checkout line and I'll go, ooh, Nestle's Crunch. I think I'll have that, right? I'm, a, I'm an impulsive spender. Some worry about monies. Others are confident. So what, what shapes our money? I read uh, one report on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the article that stated that our money style is shaped by our money circles. In other words, how we view money is shaped by the, the environment that we're in. Let me talk about five things that shape our hearts towards money. First is our upbringing. Our upbringing, our childhood, our, our family life prior to starting our own family has a lot of influence on us. For example, when daddy's little girl comes up to daddy and says, daddy, please, or we know how this ends, right? <laughs> you know how this ends. That sets a precedent, right, of, uh, of that in, in that child's life. Secondly, our heart towards money is shaped by our life experiences. If you grew up in a lower income family, you might tend to be more thrifty. If you grew up in an affluent home, you might think, I need that 85-inch television screen even though I can't afford it, right? It conditions us. Thirdly, the people around us shape our view of money. Keeping up with the Joneses, that's a real deal right? We see what other people in our stage of life are acquiring, accumulating, and we begin to want that and desire that. That's a natural bent for us. The fourth thing that shapes our heart and our approach towards money is our education. Some of you have degrees in finance, or some of you are CPAs, and you have the education to understand money and the power of money, whereas someone that does not have that education doesn't, doesn't understand that fully. Finally, our view of money is often shaped by our personalities. We see this at work in our family, in Kathy and I's family, big time, in our kids. You know, we have four kids, and each one has a different personality, and each one has a different take on money. Carson, our oldest, she's a saver. She breaks out in hives when she has to spend money, right? Drew, Drew's not really a spender. I mean, he will spend money, but you know what he does? He figures out a way how he can spend mom and dad's money first before he has to spend his own. Reese, Reese is a giver. I mean, he will swipe the card, swipe the card until there's insufficient funds, and we come to find out he's just giving stuff away, right? He's a giver. He's clueless there. Eden, our baby, she stays in debt, right? That's her birthday's in July. She usually gets money for uh, her birthday, and she'll come to me and she'll say, Daddy, I really want to have this. Can I have this? Can I, I'll pay you back on my birthday. I'm like, baby, it's September. Like, like, we got a whole year here to go, right? I feel sorry for her husband one day, right? But we, we, we realize that there are certain key influences that shape our view of money, and we bring that into our marriage relationship, into our family dynamic. And so we have to be aware that money is a matter of the heart. There's many things that shape that. But we've got to surrender our hearts to the biblical teaching because when we do, we'll find peace.
Money is a hard issue. Second principle is that money matters because money is a matter of trust. Money is a matter of trust. It demonstrates. Uh, it shows our trust level. What do I mean by that? Look again at verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The word translated hopes can also mean trust. In other words, do not place your trust in the uncertainty of money, but rather on God who provides it. And so the first area that money is a trust issue is it expresses our trust in God. If God is the provider for it, then do we trust him to continue to provide for us? Paul says, don't trust money, trust God. And then he tells us why we can trust God. It is God who provides everything. Now, here's the question that I have for us. Do you actually see it that way? Do I actually see everything that we own as a result of God's provision to us? Do we see it as God giving us something? Because whether we see it or not, that's the truth. God provides everything. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, everything in this world is God's. And therefore, as a result of that, everything that you and I have been given is from God. Now, that's important to understand. Because when you and I begin to see it that way, then we approach money differently. Now, here's the deal. If we view it, I've earned this, I've accomplished this, then what do we do? We become haughty, arrogant. But then if we're like, well, I don't know if God's going to come through. There might be a little more month than there is money, and, and I don't know how God is going to show up. That's expressing a lack of trust that God is going to provide. You might say, well, I work for everything that I have. That may be true, but who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the resources to work? You might say, well, I've worked hard to position ourselves to be able to be in the financial position that we're in. Okay, well, well who, it, who is it that, that had the provision to, to coordinate all the events in order to make that possible? Well, it's God. We have to begin to see that our money is something we have been gifted rather than something that we have earned. God has given it to us. And when we view it differently, then we will always play upon our certain views towards money, and that immediately brings tension into the family dynamic. We have to see God as the supplier. Secondly, money is a matter of trusting each other. Not only is it an expression of trust in God, it's an expression of trust in one another. Trust is vital in a marriage relationship because without it, you don't have a relationship. If you cannot trust one another, you cannot have a relationship with one another. And the way we approach finances in our family either builds trust or it destroys trust. I want to give you a few ways that, that approach to money destroys church, uh, trust in a marriage relationship. And then I want to give you a few ways that it builds trust in a marriage relationship. First, trust destroyers. Weaponizing money will destroy a trust in your family. This might be where one person is very restrictive. There's no way. Absolutely not. We're not going to do this. 
Or another person beating one up, the other person up, berating them on a purchase that they made. Or when the breadwinner lords it over the other as to be the main determining factor as to how money is spent. That is a trust destroyer. Another trust destroyer that is common in a family dynamic is when one person hides money from the other person. One of the studies I mentioned earlier discovered that one-third of people who say they've argued with their spouse about money hid purchases from their spouse. Keeping money hid not for a surprise gift, you see, but so that you can keep that part of your life secret, that's a problem that destroys trust in a marriage relationship. While trust destroyers will tear a family apart, finances can be an opportunity to build trust in your family. What are some trust builders? Well, having a joint account where you and your spouse can see everything freely and openly, it creates this sense of openness and transparency. It's a trust builder. Another trust builder is when it comes to money is is to have open and often uh, communication. Understanding one another's spending habits and differences might allow for accountability and openness. One way to do this is to set a limit that is required. Anything at that limit or higher must be discussed with both people. When Kathy and I first got married, uh, it was $25, right? I mean, that was a big purchase uh, back in those days. And, and as we have grown and our income has grown over the years, that has moved up. But the point is, is you need to set that limit. What is that limit for you by which you both agree upon before the purchase is made? That's a trust builder. When it comes to money, it's a matter of the heart and it's a matter of trust. The third principle is that money matters because money is a matter of stewardship. It's a matter of stewardship. When we come to the realization, God, you've given us everything that we have. All of our resources are from you. You have gifted this to us. It puts us in a different position. We say, God, we want to steward your money well. That's changing your perspective. We move from spending to how can we steward things. Look at verse 18 of 1 Timothy 6 as as Paul addresses this idea of stewardship. He says, they are to do good to be rich in good works. The idea of doing good carries the meaning of doing what is right, doing well with what God has entrusted to us. This is the whole idea of stewardship. To steward something means that you manage it, and you manage it well. And managing the resources God has given us is vital to a biblical family. And he invites us, God invites us to manage it in a way that honors him. So whenever that is our perspective, we're no longer focused on spending, we're focused on stewarding. We take that mindset, we reduce tension in the marriage. So the question becomes, how do we become good stewards of the riches that God has given us? How do we manage our resources? Let me mention a few things here. Number one, Develop a family budget. Your family needs a budget. Now, some of you may say, duh, Pastor Chris. I mean, this is not very profound. I mean, everybody needs a budget. Okay, but did you know that only 32% of all U.S. households have a budget? 
That's a woefully small percentage. John Maxwell once said, a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. The Bible teaches the importance of having a budget. Jesus, in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? In other words, you need a budget, right? Our families need a budget. Now, if budgeting is new to you, let me give you some keys on what goes into your budget. You need to think all sources of income. You need to think all of your fixed expenses. And you need to create a way where you create margin in your budget. You need savings. You need to save money. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But here's the deal. When you set a budget and you work that budget, you live by that budget, you will see God show up in your life, in your family. So another point to stewardship, develop a family budget. But secondly, keep a handle on debt. When the Bible does not say that all debt is bad, and while it doesn't say that, it does challenge us to be wise in our debt load. Proverbs 22.7 says this, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. In other words, debt enslaves us. It becomes our master. It begins to tell us where our finances go. And so we need to have a handle on debt. Now, I will say this. There are, there, there's good debt. There's bad debt. Good debt, for example, may be on your home, so long as you can afford it, right? Because home values tend to rise, increase, and so it becomes an investment uh, in, in your life. But credit card debt, credit card debt is crippling. I know this because I've been there. Credit card debt cripples us. It creates unnecessary stress on your marriage and on your family. According to the study that I mentioned throughout this message, findings show that the larger a couple's debt, the more likely they were to say that money is the top issue that they fight about. The study also pointed out that the average household credit card debt, just credit card debt, is $14,241. And listen, when you add on top of that the interest rates on credit cards, it is crippling. And if you are at a point where you are only paying minimum payments, you're losing ground. Okay? Credit card debt will cripple you. You need to get a handle on debt. Families can avoid undue stress by handling debt. Sticking to your budget. Saving money for emergencies will allow you to do that. Way that you can stay out of debt is to ask yourself three questions before you purchase it. Question number one, why do I want to purchase this? That gets to the motivation of the heart. Why do I want to make this purchase? Second question, can I afford it? Can I pay for it? If you cannot pay for it, you don't need to purchase it. Thirdly, the third question is, should I purchase it? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right? Those three questions will help us to become good stewards of our resources. 
Okay, develop a family budget, keep a handle on debt. The third way to steward resources well is to invest for the future. Paul tells Timothy that. Store up treasures for the future. You need to, as a married couple, as a family, set goals for what you want your future to look like. You know, the Bible speaks to this in Proverbs 13, 22. When the, when the writer says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. When investing for the future, you need to think both short-term and long-term. Let me talk short-term for just a moment. Short-term investment, short-term planning for the future means that it is a good rule of thumb to have three to six months worth of expenses in your savings account and in an interest-bearing savings account. If that's not feasible for you, just start working towards an emergency fund. Because here's the deal. It is certain to happen. The moment that we start bringing our finances under the, the reign and rule, the lordship of Christ, you're going to encounter speed bumps. For example, unexpected expenses like new tires. Okay, that's too soon for me, right? That's, that's personal right there, right? When new tires come, or doctor bills, you have savings, those mountains, guess what? They become speed bumps, right? No one likes to spend money on that. But if you have savings, if you have an emergency fund, eh, it's no big deal. And it lowers the tension. That's short-term investing. Let's talk now about long-term investing. And listen, let me just be very direct with you. If you do not have a plan for retirement, you're behind all right? You need to start thinking about your long-term future. And there are many ways that you can plan for your future, and you can plan for retirement, and there are financial planners that can help you think through all of that and help you achieve your goals. But it is important. If you're depending upon Social Security, I think you may be in trouble. Okay? Just word to the wise. Take that. That's free. All right? But, but we need to think about our futures and have a plan. So money is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of trust, and it's a matter of stewardship. Fourthly, the fourth principle we learn in this passage is that money matters because money is a matter of the gospel. Money is a gospel issue. That's what Paul says. Look again at verse 18 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6. It says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Why? To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Well, what future is that? That they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul is getting at here is he is urging us to be a generous people. Why would he urge us to be a generous people? Well, generosity reflects the gospel. So how, how does that happen? A couple of ways. First, generosity reflects the gospel because our God is a generous God. We're never more godly than when we're generous. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that, say it with me, He gave, right? His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This verse is the gospel in one verse. 
The gospel is all about God's love motivating him to give what is most precious from him in order that others may be blessed. Listen, we we ought to be an open-handed people. The gospel, in a way, demands that of us, beloved, that we live open-handedly. We're to be generous. Secondly, generosity is a gospel issue because it's an investment in the gospel. Paul echoes Jesus in verse 19. He says, storing up treasure. What does Jesus say? Store up treasure for yourselves in heaven. Right? Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. That future is true life. What is true life? Well, it's eternal life. When we invest in the gospel, we store up treasure in heaven. How do you do this? The Bible teaches two ways that you invest in the gospel. First is through tithes, and second is through offerings. He said, well, what's a tithe? That sounds like a church word. It is a church word. It's a biblical word. But it means to give a tenth of your income. Now, I mean, there, we could spend a whole sermon on, on this, but let me just hit the highlight here. You'll never read Paul teaching in the New Testament to give the tithe. It's there. The principle is there. Because Jesus addresses the Pharisees, and he says, you tithe, which is good, but your hearts are in the wrong place. So there, there is an underlying teaching of the tithe even in the New Testament. But here's why I think Paul doesn't teach the tithe. Because he doesn't want to be motivated by legalism. He wants to be motivated by the gospel and extreme generosity. I think the biblical approach to giving should be the tithe is the floor, not the ceiling. It's where our generosity begins. We tithe, we, we give a 10% to the church. And, and listen, this is true. Kathy and I can tell you story after story where we've seen this come to fruition. God can do more with your 90% than you can do with 100 of it. Okay? God can do more with 90 than you can with 100%. If you're not currently giving to the church, here's my advice to you. Start somewhere. I don't know, give 3%. Give, five, give $40. Start the habit and then begin to work towards 10%. And, and I need you to understand, listen, I know coming from a pastor this sounds self-serving, but let me just be clear. God does not need our money. He doesn't. God can accomplish what God does without your money and mine. Okay? That, that's the truth of the matter. So then why is it important then to give a tenth? Well, number one, it brings us under the lordship of Christ. And number two, we're invited in to be a part of fueling what God is doing. God can accomplish it, but he invites us into it. And so uh, think about that. Just start somewhere. But here's the perspective that I want you guys to see. This is giving in a nutshell. This is giving to the church in a nutshell. Everything is from God to us, through the church, for the kingdom. You see that? It's circular. Let me say it again. Everything is from God, to us, through the church, for the kingdom. That's what giving is all about. But in addition to tithes are offerings. An offering as a Bible is a gift given above and beyond the tithe. And there are many ways that you can give offerings. 
For example, you can help fund somebody's mission trip. You could fill up someone's tank with gas. You could buy the meal of the person in the drive-thru line behind you. These are examples of offerings. You could be led of the Spirit to give towards a specific initiative. These are promptings that God leads you to give above and beyond the tithe. The point is, is that the gospel enables you and me to be a generous people. Did you know generosity is the antidote to selfishness? If you have a tendency to be very selfish, I want to encourage you to start giving, and you'll see that selfishness disappear real quick. It's the antidote to being selfish. And did you know that this is the one area that God invites us to test him in? Let me read to you Malachi 3.10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, I think we have a tendency to look at that and say, well, if I give, then I'm going to get. That's not, that's not necessarily the case. It could be. But I think what, what God is saying is test me. See if, if you give the tithe, see how I may bless you in a variety of ways. right? And so this is God inviting us to it. In conclusion, let me just say this. When it comes to money matters in the home, the biblical family recognizes money as a matter of the heart, it recognizes money as a matter of trust, a matter of stewardship, and a matter of the gospel. And when you take those four categories of your life, guess what? You'll align them to God's word, you'll find freedom, and you'll find fulfillment and contentment. Let me just offer this for you guys. If you're here today, and you would say, Pastor Chris, I'm struggling. Our family is struggling financially. Can I just tell you, I want to get you help. And the Lord has blessed our church with people that are brilliant when it comes to this area of finances. We have a stewardship team here in place at our church, and that stewardship team provides for us an accountability and helps us stay on track when it comes to finances of our church. Every member of that stewardship team is brilliant when it comes to money. And I'm just, I, never, I haven't talked to them about this, but I'm voluntarily telling them to do this. If you would like help, I want you to just email confidentially, info at trinitytx.org, and simply write and say, we need help with finances. And here's my promise to you. I'm going to get you connected with somebody that's brilliant in this. And they're going to walk with you through this so that you can experience freedom, you can experience peace, and you can experience a move of God in your life in an area that you never dreamed of. Okay, God wants that for us. We need to align our lives to His. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903 
572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.